Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Helping Hands of Our Community, addressing the Social Determinants of Health podcast, where we highlight the incredible work of individuals, agencies, and organizations who are committed to creating healthy and thriving communities through their community-engaged work. Thank you for taking time and joining us today. My name is Roger Zaklupe, your host, and unfortunately, we do not have my amazing co-host, Drew Reynolds, who is in Atlanta, but I am excited to present three individuals today, three guests who are um, who are doing wonderful work, not only in the academic circle as students, but then also in a professional level. So today, we have Tish Gearin, who is an MSW, LCSW uh, here in the Charlotte area. She is the owner of Transitions Management Group, where she specializes in work with individuals, couples, families, organizations, veterans, and athletes. Tish has 13 years of practice in various settings, such as inpatient units, juvenile justice, social services, private practice, and currently in professional sports. Welcome, Tish. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we also have two very special guests in studio, Javius Ellis and Jimmy Heaney. Javius is a advanced standing student here in the MSW program at UNCC. I've had the honor and pleasure of teaching Javius in class. Uh, he is set to graduate this May. And we also have Jimmy Heaney, who is a first-year MSW student in the UNCC program in the School of Social Work and also have the honor and privilege of teaching him as well. So welcome, guys. Glad you guys were able to join us here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So we're going to get started here in a little bit with information about Tish and the work that you're doing, right? Okay. So if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your current work in the community. So um, my name is Tish Garen. I am a Charlotte native. I uh, went to Winston-Salem State University uh, for my undergraduate degree in psychology and a minor uh, in sociology. Then I took a couple of years off just to kind of go straight into work and figure out what it is I wanted to do in the social work field. Um, and during that time, I more so found out what I didn't want to do, not what I actually wanted to do, um, but still gained you know great experience. Um, I realized pretty quickly. Um, at that time, I was working in substance abuse and I worked in foster care, which I think I had left out. Uh, Roger, I didn't tell you that, but I worked in foster care for a while as well. Um, and I think during that time, um, I, I wasn't happy with, you know, the work that I was doing. I felt like it was rewarding. Um, but at the same time, I felt that um, it just wasn't my true calling and uh, it became very emotionally draining. And I think that's one of the things we don't really speak about enough uh, when we have students that are just graduating and entering into the field, you know, they're ready to work and you have a generalized idea of what social work is and what that work means. Um, but it's very different when you're actually putting it into practice and making sure that you're mentally and emotionally prepared to handle some of the things that you're going to encounter. Uh, so I realized that I uh, wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something more, but with that was going to require more education. So I worked for a couple of years. I graduated in 2005 from my undergrad, and then I'd worked about three years. And then in 2008, um, I decided to go to grad school. So I went to grad school at USC Columbia, go Gamecocks. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, I got a funny little UNCC story later. I don't know if you guys want to air Let's it, do that. but I don't know. I got rejected. I got rejected here. Yeah. <laughs> That's another story. Um, but USC said yes. Haha. <laughs> so I went to USC and I did um, the full-time program there and it was great. Um, I learned a lot um, and made great connections and, and connections that I still have now with like the dean and um, the, the staff there. Um, but uh, 
that opportunity allowed me to you know, really grow and really figure out what it is I want to do. So I did the MSW uh, communities and organizational track, um, not the individuals and families, um, because I wanted to take more of a macro approach to social work. I really wanted to be in administration. I wanted to help influence policy. Um, I knew I wanted to be a leader in the field. Um, So when I did that, uh, I graduated and worked, you know, like everyone else does, working towards licensure for the most part. Um, And the thing that you don't necessarily or you overlook when you're working uh, towards your licensure is that you're only really allowed to work in specific positions. So it really pigeonholes you, you know, a great deal. And that's something, you know, I've talked to the NASW about um, and still kind of advocating for my own little solo, you know, soapbox um, just about how we really have to make sure that while we're still looking at social work, that we're starting to think about it in a broader context and that we're looking for opportunities for students and for uh, potential clinicians to engage so that they can do more, you know, in the world, do more in communities, do more in um, professional and corporate settings, which is not typically settings that we look at for social work, Right. Right. So uh, I, I started doing, you know, work, working towards my licensure. So I was doing like intensive in-home. I was doing day treatment. I was doing, you know, outpatient therapy. Um, and all of those were pretty much standard, or at least in the state of North Carolina. Those were like the jobs that you had to take. And that was the only thing that the board was really approving um, to actually get to work towards your licensure. I think they've grown a little bit now, but not much. Um, in terms of like what you're allowed to do. So I did that. Um, I got my license um, because I felt like that was the only way for me to, number one, be able to try to make the money that I wanted to make, um, which is, you know, a very real, you know, issue in social work, um, just like with teachers, but we don't talk about it in social work as much, um, is the the pay differential, you know. Right. Um, it's, it's a thing. It's an issue. Um, so I pursued my clinical licensure um, and, again, worked Two years towards that, then I had to work another two years post-licensure um, just to really gain the experience and get respect so that I could get the jobs that I wanted to do. And then those things started kind of coming. But again, I think what some people forget is that uh, when you're going to social work, especially if you're going to climb, like it's a journey, like it's not quick. Um, so even with me working in professional sports now, I think students look at uh, what I do now and think, OK, I'm going to graduate undergrad. I'm going to do that. I guarantee you, like, that's it's just not going to happen. Um, even when I got, you know, into professional sports, I still had to justify my experience in education um, because they're looking at me like, you've only been doing it for 13 years. I'm like, yeah, that's 13 years, you know, of just, like, education and experience, and it's taken me that long. Um, but I learned so much, and I gained so much valuable experience that I utilize now during that experience, um, during during this time, and um, just doing my practice in general. Um, but I, I was, you know, very fortunate to, you know, get my licensure, and then I also got licensed in South Carolina as well. Okay. Um, and then I went and got another licensure, um, which is like a telemental health licensure, and then um, also in the process of working on my um, a sports psychology license and applied sports psychology. So um, just kind of continuing to grow. But um, again, I, I, I've worked in so many different settings, and I think with each setting definitely came knowledge. And I think that's the biggest thing um, that a social work student or anyone that's entering this field really has to realize is that it's a broad range of, of, of areas in which you can go into if you're really just open to it and you're diligent about it, um, but not forgetting that you are going to have to put in work. Like, you're going to have to pay your dues. You're going to work in some places that you just don't like, um, but you have to keep your eye on 
what experience are you getting? And once I turned my focus to that and I started really looking at, you know, okay, Tish, even though you don't really like the organization or you don't like the company, um, but I love working with the patients. Like I loved working with the clients um, because that's where I got my my education from. That's where I got my experience from. And I started to focus on that and really refine my skill set. Um, and those are the things that helped me to kind of go to those next levels. So um, then I really started focusing really in like management. So I worked at um, one of the biggest MCOs here in Charlotte. It was Cardinal Innovations and I was a manager there. Um, so I had like... T- 14 or so like clinicians under me um and they range from all different you know ages you know I had someone that was you know as as actually I think I was the youngest I was the manager but yeah I think I was the, I was the youngest manager I think they had had um in history and I managed the inpatient team um and I had people that were like you know 35 all the way to 65 um and they were across all you know 16 counties you know at the time and they were LPCs, LCSWs, LCASs, RN. I had two RNs um, that reported to me. And I loved that work. Um, I absolutely loved it because I got to do administrative work and look at social work on a on a macro scale. Um, that's what I, I wanted to do. Um, and then I just kind of kept moving, you know, after that. Um, took some time off um, and really just worked in my private practice and really growing that. Um, and just being an independent soul, you know, practitioner. Um, and that worked really well for me as well. Um, and now I am, you know, in professional sports, um, you know, working, I work with the Panthers. Um, and I love that work as well um, because I, I get to still do everything that I've been doing, but it's just in a different setting. Well, it sounds like you've had just a, a, a variety of experiences that have nurtured and helped you become uh, the helping professional that communities deserve and need. And and we're going to take a little bit of a different turn during this podcast episode because we're going to focus on athletes. We're going to focus on um, collegiate athletes, even high school athletes, as they segue into perhaps even professional sports. Um, and, and that's why I inv- uh, invited Jimmy and, and Javius here because uh, their interest as students is the intersection of sports and the helping profession. Okay. Um, you know, we are social workers in this room today right now as LCSWs and future LCSWs. But the reality is that helping professionals out there can be LPCs, can be counselors, uh, can be clinicians, therapists, LMFTs, anybody who is who has their their hand on the helping profession umbrella is uh, is somebody that we definitely want to be reaching out to in the sense of our listeners. Okay. Um, because sports and mental wellness or emotional wellness uh, sometimes um, it feels like they don't belong in the same space, but they so belong in the same space, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we appreciate you being here because you definitely want your input on, on, you know, through that lens as a helping professional looking into inside the world of sports, but then also recognizing and realizing how stressful that life can be for not only a professional, but a college athlete. And then now, a high school athlete, yeah. and we can even go back to middle school. And so um, I know that uh, Javis and Jimmy, they have experiences as athletes, so they could probably uh, chime in a bit in regards to that world. Um, but then your lens also, Tish, is from um, you know not only the professional level, but then also from the collegiate level, because yeah. you kind of see a little bit of, of, of that. So yeah. let's talk about that. Let's talk about the life of an athlete. You know, What are the stressors that athletes today are experiencing? So I guess um, starting off, 
uh, we have a lot of time that we're putting towards the sport with scheduling. Um, it's the way that you're you have to focus on the things that are happening on the field and off the field as well. You have a lot of people who are pushing you to do better on the field, but then you don't have that support, same support when it's like in the classroom. A lot of times I notice working with some of the kids that I'm working with at Thompson, a lot of my kids are in sports, but their teachers are pushing them through. Instead of giving them support for their class and their grades, they're kind of pushing them through to the point of, hey, as long as you do good on the field, you continue or on the court, we'll, we'll get you through it. So a lot of stresses come from once they leave that space when it's, okay, now you can perform, but in order for you to keep this scholarship, you have to show that you can do it in a classroom as well. So, Yeah, no, and that, that transition is, is extremely difficult. And I think it's something that we don't really look at a lot with athletes is just that academic transition from high school into college and how stressful that that can be. Uh, I know for me, I went to a high school that was not, um, they didn't really have a, the similar educational stance that the university that I went to um, did. So for me, that transition was extremely difficult. Expectations in the classroom were much different. Um, like Jay was saying, like I was no longer getting passed along in the classroom because of what I was doing on the field. You needed to pass legitimately. And the lack of that support was something that really stood out to me in my experience um, as a student athlete. And it was something that I was very fortunate to have coaches step in. Um, but definitely looking back on it from a social work lens, uh, it's definitely an area I think that this profession can integrate in effectively, being able to advocate for student athletes, be able to send them to the proper resources, and just be that ultimate support system for those students. Because at the end of the day, they're young students who are going through a very big transition. So I think um, at the collegiate level, we're seeing a little bit more of a push uh, in terms of just making sure that athletes are, you know, taken care of. I've been on two panels this week, um, and, and the first panel was actually at work um, with the Panthers, and we had Brandon Marshall, um, former NFL player. He came in, um, and, and he and I were on a panel with um, uh, athletic director from my alma mater, WSSU, and um, Brandon Risher, another psychological associate here in Charlotte. And what we talked about, um, you know, was really that was, you know, the need to really help decrease the stigma and how do we help push, you know, the conversation um, forward. So I think at the collegiate level, I have a few uh peers, friends, colleagues um, that are working and are overseeing like behavioral health departments specifically for athletics. So meaning that they make sure that they um, meet with the, you know, the soccer team and the rugby team and the basketball and the football and the women's tennis and baseball and all of these athletes are, 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 getting more one-on-one -on -one connection. That's not at every school, um, but I do see that there is a growing trend, and I think that's definitely something that you guys entering, you know, into the field, and JV especially, you know, I know you will be entering soon. Um, that's something that you're interested in. You should definitely start to look into that realm um, as well just to kind of, you know, get that experience. Um, but at I think at the collegiate level, they're a little bit more proactive, and they're open um, to creation and implementation of new programs and thought processes that really didn't um, exist before. So like a, a great uh, friend and, and colleague of mine, Dr. Candice, um, oh gosh, I just went, Williams, um, she's at um, Ohio State University and she oversees the entire um, athletic wellness department. Wow. <laughs> um, and that's huge, you know, for a school that size. Um, same thing at Vanderbilt. Um, I got a, co a colleague out there. Um, and I've went and visited these programs and talked to these students um, just about mental health and wellness. So I, I think we are seeing a, a 
good culture shift. Um, and, you know, you're even just in SARS discussion, you're seeing that more. You're seeing people walking around with shirts that say, have you talked to your therapist today? Or, you know, I'm pretty much an advocate of the dope therapist movement. I got T-shirts. It's my hashtag. It's my IG name. Um, you know, it, it's, it's more common than I think we think. And I think part of that is, you know, getting rid of the stigma and especially for our student athletes, making them realize that, you know, it's not about a diagnosis. You know, now granted, if you have a diagnosis and you can provide that, it can definitely provide segue for treatment and um, getting better and all that kind of thing. But if you are a clinician and you're leading with that, it's going to be a deterrent because um, a lot of times, especially for, I think, student athletes, because there are already so many pressures, and especially if you're an elite student athlete, right. um, there are so many pressures like, oh, my gosh, the whole program is riding on my success, like, you know, like we talked about. And, um, you know, I've got to keep grades up and I got to make sure I'm not getting bribed or, you know, all these other things. And I have all these girls coming at me and how do I manage this? And I'm still technically failing, but they're passing me through or, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of things that go into, you know, just that psyche. But I think if we have programs in place that are geared specifically towards student athletes, meaning we develop counseling, and I don't know if UNCC has this, but, you know, having those internships or those connections for counseling students or students that are working towards their in their master's program to do internships specifically with the athletic departments in various sports and bridge that gap and start to really build programming around that where you can decrease that stigma where it's like, you know what, we're not even talking about like a diagnosis necessarily. Just tell me what's going on with you. What's going through your head? What changes have you, have you noticed, you know, lately? And really just making it general conversation. And even for me at the professional level, um, that's what I spend a lot of time doing. You know, me uh, being full-time in-house was very different um, than what was typically seen across the league because everyone was usually contracted, you know, 8 to 12 hours per week is now the new mandate. But it was more of a sense of we just need to normalize someone like me being seen and being present. So what happened was, you know, for the first couple of months, guys didn't really know how to take me. And I had to really adjust, you know, because I was showing up in, you know, what I've always been taught business attire. And I had my little blazer going to work and my button down shirt and my pearls. And, and I felt like I was coming across too clinical. And I felt like that might have deterred guys from feeling comfortable with me. So I was like, all right, you got to realize where you're at, um, the the situation you're in. And um, I have to I have this thing that I always say is be water. Like you just got to be water. Water takes the shape of whatever, you know, container that is in. So you got to be fluid. And I was like, OK, I'm going to change this up. So I think the next day I came to work, I had got like a brand new pair of fresh J's I wore to work. I had on some jeans. I had on like, you know, a collar shirt and then, or like a, you know, just a panther shirt and like a hoodie. And I, that's basically how I started dressing like every day, like to the point I was like, gosh, I forgot I own heels. <laughs> like, because I felt like once I kind of changed and I relaxed, you know, as far as the appearance look, you know, a little bit, it gave guys to be like, oh, what up, Tish? You know, and, you know, I was getting those invites to come and sit with them for lunch, you know. Um, but, it what it did was is that it made my I made my presence more normal and they knew what my and they know what my role is. So it's just like, oh, hey, well, this is what's going on day or it might just be Tish, what do you think about this? And that's how you start to build those relationships. And that's how you start to build, build that rapport and yeah. build that bridges so that if something does come up or if you do want to take the standpoint of being preventative um, versus reactive, then that rapport building is, is a very big thing. And Roger, you know, like and you guys should know this now, um, you know, 
that's one of the biggest things when you're thinking about clinical um, experience and clinical practice is, is one of the things you learn um, first and foremost is you have to ensure that you're building that rapport. And that's the biggest thing. And sometimes rapport building starts at the beginning. Sometimes things happen and then you got to continue to build that rapport like in the middle of like treatment right. or in the middle of, of, of that practice. And it's something that's ever growing, ever changing. Um, and so that's kind of like what I, I rely on. And I think that's what we need to kind of push towards when we're talking about, you know, our student athletes is we have to make it as normalized as possible. Like, don't go into it like, oh, I'm diagnosing you. You know, don't walk around with the little pad and the pen, you know, ready to write a script or, you know, a treatment plan. Um, and me coming from all the experience that I had in JV's, I think you said you're at Thompson, Child and Family Focus? Yes, ma'am. Okay. So when you're doing those types of experiences, you are you get so ingrained and conditioned to just think a certain way to respond a certain way, to write a certain way. And I know because I did it for years. And so when I started transitioning into other areas, I realized I really almost have to re-educate myself on how I can still do the same thing, but do it more efficiently. Um, and we can get in, you know, the whole Medicaid, that, that's a whole nother beast in terms of like documentation and what you have to do. But when you get into like private practice, I think it's, it's different. Um, it's not like that. Um, so I think we just have to make sure that we're constantly educating ourselves and making sure that we fit what the re environment needs and what the clients need. So in this case, um, student athletes and making sure that we adjust to that and not feel like we have to be cookie cutter. It's almost like if somebody is feeling a certain way, whether it's I'm sad, I'm anxious, fill in the blank, mm -hmm. um, they feel they might feel bad about that. Mm -hmm. and our job shouldn't be to make them feel bad about feeling a certain way. It right. should be about saying, hey, you know what? That's perfectly fine. Like, yeah, I get sad too. Um, your stressors might be different from my stressors or of why I get sad or why you get sad, but I get sad too. I yeah. get anxious too. I'm happy too. So there's all mm -hmm. these different things that we could do as helping professionals to decrease that stigma. You had mentioned uh, being on a panel with Brandon Marshall and actually Jay and I looked at each other and Jimmy, because I, I uh, some of the articles that I have students read, um, have to do with athletes, yeah. professional athletes. And there was an article that I had utilized um, uh, that I found online years ago that highlighted Brandon Marshall and his journey mm -hmm. and um, and how it, it it wasn't something that one day just happened. Right. It was, his journey was from from way before he became a professional mm -hmm. athlete. Um, and, it, and it's that intersection that I really am interested in talking about is, um, you know, when you talk about depression or somebody who has um, has been diagnosed diagnosed with borderline personality, personality disorder, disorder et cetera, yep. it's it's nothing that just happened that day. Correct. These are these are things that have happened over time. It's just this accumulation of of perhaps not even having the identification of this is what's going on. Right. But even let's think about that even from like a clinical perspective. When exactly does that take place? Right. During your college years. Like that, eighteen to to twenty three, that's that's when you see it. That's when you see the break, the change, um, and so that's why it's it's so important for you know our collegiate athletes, um, you know, specific. I mean, in college in general, it's important to have, but you know, for those collegiate athletes to get that kind of support. Um, I remember being in college. It was my junior year. Um, my 
it was a, a a neighbor in my dorm. He was across the hall, and I remember our our campus had just got these really cool dorm locks on the doors that were like magnetic. Like we had the old school keys, and then in the new dorms we had like the magnetic keys, and it would turn green when you could like unlock it. It was really cool, and I remember. Um, and I would always, you know, he and I would always talk. We'd study. Um, he was a very personable guy. And then I hadn't seen him for, you know, like a couple of weeks. Um, and then he came back to school um, and um, he had kicked in his dorm room door um, that he shared with like three other guys, um, trashed the suite, flipped over tables. Um, he was walking around in Winston-Salem at the time. It was probably about 23 degrees outside. It gets pretty cold and windy up there, even for North Carolina, but um, it was really cold. Um, he was walking around campus selling all of his belongings. Um, he was walking around in a, just a T-shirt, um, no coat, um, some jeans. I think at one point he didn't even have boots or shoes on. Um, and I found out that his grandmother had passed and that was the trigger. He basically had a, and that's who raised him. And he basically had a psychotic break and, um, found out that he was schizophrenic, had been diagnosed, but he stopped taking his medication. Um, and so that was what we were seeing. And again, he was at that time about 19, you know, 20 years old. Um, and that was, and I, that will always stick out to me because I'm like, why is he being so weird? Like, this is super, like, it was not his normal baseline behavior. Um, and so that's why it's like when you're in school and when you're in college, it's like it's important to pay attention to who's around you because these are very fragile times, you know. Um, for the most part, everyone comes out, you know, fine, unscathed, you know, no real mental health, you know, breakdown. But there are those where, you know, we have to be pay attention to those signs, to those warning signs. And for him, his came on so quick. Like nobody knew what to do with that. Um, and I think even our counseling department, they got involved involved um, and tried to get him help, some help and, and realize what was going on. Um, but to the people that were around that were like students, we were like, what is this? Um, and as I got, you know, further along in my career, I realized, oh, this is like, it's real. Like it's something that you read about, um, but it's different when you actually see it in application. And I hope that you guys as students and as people, as, as guys that will be entering into the field, I really hope that you get the experience you need to to get to see that because it's one thing to read these articles. I'm telling you, it's one thing to read the DSM five and to see and read a clinical diagnosis. It is a whole nother thing to be able to put it into application to see what that diagnosis really looks like in real life. Um, it can blow your mind. I mean, because you, you really think like, wow, the mind is just this real complex entity and it doesn't, everyone is not affected the same. There are social, environmental, economic factors, of course, that play into those things. Um, and I think I really got to see, that was my first time. And I'm sorry. I know, Roger, I go off on a tangent. I'm no, sorry. Good. Um, yeah. I was like, this you is... probably had like a specific question and I just kind of went off. <laughs> we go with the flow here on this podcast. Um, but, you know, I, I, I remember working at um, Behavioral Health Charlotte. Um, on the inpatient unit. Um, and again, that's kind of when I decided, okay, oh, Tish, you need to go to grad school. Like, <laughs> there's some more you got to learn. Like, you need to really go to grad school. Um, and I remember working there and seeing someone that was catatonic. You know, um, I worked on the high acute unit. Um, so seeing, you know, someone that had just had a psychotic break or, um, you know, or that were schizophrenic or um, I remember working with a, a mom 
that had two stillborn births and she just shut down. Like she couldn't do anything for herself because it affected her so deeply. And I remember I was on like a one-to-one with her and I was brushing her hair and helping her, you know, brush her teeth. And she just couldn't do it. Um, And even someone that was, you know, so paranoid that he would only eat packaged food in the hospital. Like he wouldn't eat any fresh meals because he thought people were trying to poison him. But I, I I hope you guys get that kind of experience, and I know that probably sounds scary, um, but it's amazing. I think all of those things kind of prepared me now. So it's like if I see something in someone, it doesn't take me as long as it with the the average person. I see it, I recognize it. That's the warning sign. I can intervene right now. I don't need to wait until this escalates because I know what it looks like. Um, and just getting that kind of experience and that exposure, um, it's beyond the books. Ooh, I think I'm, I'm going to do something with that line. Yeah, it is beyond the books. Okay, it's it's beyond the degree. Um, that, that'll be the title of our that'll be the title of our of our book, Tish. Um, <laughs> beyond the books. Beyond yeah, the books. yeah. You know, it, it, it's because that's when you really that's when the knowledge really starts. That's when the you know you really gain the most experience. I know we, you had mentioned the collegiate athlete, um, but with Jimmy and, and Jay here, I wanted to ask about. The high school athlete, though, because mm-hmm. the, the high school athlete becomes that collegiate athlete, right? And so there's sort of, the, I feel like sometimes the high school athlete is not thought of a lot. You know, we're focusing on college athletes, which is, yeah. But a lot of high school athletes um, are heavily recruited. And with that recruiting process comes a lot of pressures, whether it's uh, I got to make sure that I maintain my grades in order to get into this school. Or for some students, it could be I'm going to be in this new environment. Um, I'm going to be in a new town. I'm I'm going to this big school. What what does that mean for me? So I, I wanted to get y'all's take on it since, uh, you know, being athletes in high school, coming in and going through the process. How was, what is that like for the high school athlete? Uh, yeah. So for me, the recruitment process was, uh, was very interesting. Uh, so I'm from New England originally. We kind of have two recruiting processes. One in middle school, we get recruited to go to high school. One in high school, we get recruited to go to college. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's an intense process, and I played uh, lacrosse, which is a very um, big sport in that area. Prep schools are very prominent. Um, so for me, the recruiting process was kind of an interesting one. I kind of jumped on the circuit very early. Was getting noticed as a freshman, as a sophomore. Went through some struggles in my own life, and actually ended up losing all of my offers. And that was very difficult because you really do, as an athlete, you tie your identity so much to that sport. So for me. My identity was being a good lacrosse player and was I was supposed to go to X school and get a scholarship and be that person. So when you kind of start chipping away at that, for me, it was very difficult. And it kind of like was uh, it was very stripping of my identity when I was no longer a Division One athlete. Right. I wasn't that guy that I was supposed to be. It was a very difficult transition. Now I'm very fortunate. I mean, I went and played Division Two. I had a, a relatively good collegiate experience. Everything went well. And now what I find myself doing professionally is I work with these high school students. So I'm working with high school athletes and helping them through the recruiting process and go into college. It's now seeing it on the other side where I'm watching on the other side of the mirror, if you will, athletes go through a similar process. It's very difficult, but just being able to kind of let them know that the expectation that has been set upon them doesn't mean that if you, if you don't hit that expectation, you're not a failure, that there are so many other routes that you can go. Um, and just kind of letting, because when you're in the recruiting process, it is very um, catastrophic almost if you don't get that letter it's it's very devastating so kind of being able to work with these kids and support them and know you are a good player you are a good kid there's if you know this opportunity doesn't work out there's another one I think that's super important and then working with those kids who are on track to be a division one athlete and that knee injury happens their senior year and they're no longer able to go on and play and 
what does it look like for that kid? What, what kind of support is there? Um, but yeah, it's, it was definitely a difficult process for me personally. Um, but I definitely think the high school athlete is often forgotten um, working with those kids. It's definitely a difficult transition period for them. Do you feel like there's a part that um, parents have to play mm-hmm. uh, in protecting, you know, the, their their student athlete child, um, you know, even at, at the high school level, like definitely, you know, understanding that this is a passion or something that they really want to do and recognizing that there are, you know, college opportunities if they mm-hmm. kind of continue to pursue it. But do you feel like there's more that um, a parent, sh- a role that a parent should play or a guardian should play? Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes as a parent, and I can, right, I'm not being a, not being a parent, I can only look from it from uh, the perspective on the outside, but I can only imagine that you want the most success for your child. I think the role of a parent, though, really needs to be reminded in that they're there to support their child in whatever that they're doing. And that support is more just being there, being of someone to listen, being a reassurance, like I was saying that, just because you're not getting the offer. I think what happens with a lot of parents is they see their kid as a talent and they see that their kid could potentially go somewhere and they push their kid and, well, I'm just going to send them to this camp and I'm going to talk to this coach and let me email this person. And they that is a form of support. But what it kind of does is it takes it out of the um, out of like the kid's hand. So I think for the parents, what ends up happening and what can get difficult is when it's almost more important to the parent than the child and being able to have that kind of as a parent, your role is to support. But what does that support look like? I think that's what kind of gets lost. Just being there for your kid, driving them to the tournaments, being the, you know, how the game go. Hey, you played well, even though, you know, you didn't get that email or just because this didn't work out. I think that's more the role. Unfortunately, what happens with parents is you get so caught up and invested. It's, you know, let me just let me text this coach. Let me email this coach. Oh, I can't believe that the ref, you know, that sort of thing that hurts the kids a lot because now mom and dad are putting this expectation. So now it's not, well, I want to be a division athlete. Well, now it's connected to I want to be a D1 athlete. But dad, he really wants me to be a D1 athlete. If I'm not a D1 athlete, is dad going to be is he going to look at me the same? Right. So I think that's kind of what's what's difficult. So I think the parent needs to support the child. I think that's a good role for them. But what that support looks like, I think, is uh, very, very important. And from my perspective, those parents that do support emotionally, it's very um, positive. What okay. do you think, Jay? Yeah. Um, so adding to that, the identity of a student athlete is so important because at times I feel like my story is a little different. Um, where I'm from, I felt like my mom wasn't really aware of the next step of college and how to support in that way. So she kind of was like, hey, Javis, you got it. You know what you're doing. And it was the outside people. It was people who were saying like, okay, well, man, you need to go here. And when I talked about an academic scholarship, they're like, oh, you soft. You don't even want to play sports no more at that next level. Instead of being there like, okay, you're making it from, you're coming from a place where not too many people make it out of here. The support went away after Friday nights. After I finished the game, it was like Saturday mornings, like, okay, who are you? Like, but the the support was gone. I felt like the the awareness of was so much into what I was doing on the field, but then after not having that su- same support from others, I didn't expect my mom to know that side of it. Um, so it was a lot of pressure on me to identify who I was and what I wanted to do at the next level. And you were still a kid, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. yeah. Here, here's a kid yeah. uh, with opportunities coming in front, but that that support was was maybe not where you might have felt like it should have been, perhaps, right? And and how difficult it is to then tar- 
start making those decisions on your own as a kid. For sure. You know, as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 18-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some adults who have a difficult time making decisions like that. Mm-hmm. And now you put that pressure and that stress on a, on a kiddo. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys sharing that information with us. Um, I think it's it's key because the more open we are about things like this, the better it is to help other individuals who may have maybe in the situation where you are that can say like, oh, wow, that's me too. And oh, I can't. I can identify resources. I can get support. Somebody will help me through this. I don't have to do this by myself. Um, I kind of want to segue a little bit into these two articles that um, I've used one article in class. It's the Kevin Love article um, titled, Everyone is Going Through Something. And then most recently, Jay sent me an article uh, by Ben Gordon, uh, Where's My Mind? And they're really interesting articles. The first one by Kevin Love, um, he starts out, the article starts out, on November 5th, right after halftime against the Hawks, I had a panic attack. Now, for our listeners who might not be familiar with Ke- uh, Kevin Love, he this article was uh, when he played for the Cavaliers. Um, and it said he was he was playing a game. At halftime, I had a panic attack. It came out of nowhere. I'd never had one before. I, de- I didn't even know if they were real, but it was real. And sort of this perspective of, this was as real as if he had a broken hand or a sprained ankle. Like this panic attack was something that just overwhelmed him to the point of he might he didn't know what was going on. And how scary that is for somebody who may have never had had that experience, or maybe they did, but just didn't know how to identify it. Correct. Right. Um, and this is just one one player out of how many. You know, and we have the the Ben Gordon article, which is another. It's a great article. Thanks, Jay, for for uh, sending this out to me. But it's titled "Where Is My Mind." Um, and he starts out this, there was a point in time when I thought about killing myself every single day for about six weeks. That's, that's deep. That's heavy. You know, and I think there's this misconception about athletes having it all and not having to worry about anything. And these two particular athletes talked about, and these articles talked about having to worry about a lot. Um, so from a perspective you know, as as a professional in the field, in our field of mental wellness, and just kind of knowing about these two specific articles, like, where does this sit for us? Like, what do we need to do to be proactive as helping professionals to support um, individuals who are at this level, or maybe in college, or like we mentioned in high school? Because this is the reality for a lot of athletes, maybe. Um, and, and they might not feel comfortable speaking up about it. Um, and there's different levels of stressors. We get that. Right. Um, so, but what should we be doing? What, what should we be looking at as helping professionals? Um, I, I think we we need to address, well, I guess kind of looking at the statistics, right? So, um, you know, Mental Health America is, is really great for putting out, you know, stats on, you know, mental health. NAMI is really great about putting out stats on mental health. So it's like you want to look at it in realistic perspective. So it's like, okay, one in five. You know, one in five is dealing with, you know, a, a behavioral health or a mental health, you know, challenge. So it's five of us in here right now. So one. Um, and then when you're looking at that from like a team perspective, okay, um, so a team versus like basketball where, you know, that one in five is what, 12-man roster. Okay, so maybe two out of 12. Football team right. gets a little bit bigger. Soccer. You know, um, so I think recognizing it and putting perspective that um, I, I think sometimes it's helping. Well, it's two parts. I think sometimes it's helping professionals. Um, you know, you want to help and be there so much, but sometimes we can over insinuate that everyone has an issue mm-hmm. when everyone really doesn't. 
have an issue where, you know, the majority of people are balancing and they're figuring out. But you do have those individuals where sometimes they are just having a hard time and it's good to have that support. So I think as helping professionals, we need to be proactive and making sure that we have individuals available to address those needs. Um, at the professional level, um, you know, like every now team in the NFL, I'll speak for the NFL specifically because that's where I work, um, you know, there is a mandate that was put out in March of this, what, 2019, um, that basically said that every team had to have someone attached to that team, had to have a psychotherapist, a clinician um, available for its players at least 8 to 12 hours per week. That was huge. Before, they could do it, but they had the option not to do it. Now they don't have that option. Like, you have to have someone 8 to 12 hours per week, right? Um, and then I just so happened to kind of be full-time in-house. So I think those are steps um, that help to be proactive, that help to um, – to jump in and intervene for the Ben Gordons, you know, um, for the loves to see, you know, how assistance can be provided. But I think that on the flip side of that, you also have to kind of think about uh, the person itself. So let's let's bring it down a little bit, even thinking about our field, right? And Javis, you work in with, with children and adolescents, right? Um, you also have to think about um, the right to self-determination. And that's not something I don't think we we talk about enough. You know, you see things um, like the Ben Gordon story or you see things like the Aaron Hernandez, you know, story. Right. And you're like, oh, my gosh, nobody helped them. Nobody intervened. I guarantee you that there were people that intervened. There were people that were like, hey, you need some help or how about this or why don't I take you here? or Why don't we go get evaluated here? I guarantee you that those conversations have been had. But there's always this right to self-determination. Um, if they don't want the help and if they don't speak up, it doesn't matter how often you have help available. There's not much you can do. Um, you can't, unless they're to the point where I think Ben Gordon, I think he talked about that in his article. I don't, was he involuntarily committed? He, um, um, yeah. I think, I think he said that in the article, um, where they were basically like, dude, enough is enough. They signed the paperwork. They he went got, to the magistrate. He got arrested um, multiple and, times, and mm -hmm. then it was a court-ordered mandated therapy, and he Correct. said it was the best thing. Correct. That's it. Basically, he said he saved his life. Correct. And that's a lot of people, you know, where it's like, you know, especially when you're having those um, highly acute suicidal ideations, you know, every day for six weeks. I mean, my gosh, can you think about, you know, what was really going on in his head where every day he was contemplating. Um, but unless someone says that to you and they're verbal and, they're, and they vocalize it, um, as a clinician, as a helping professional, there really isn't much you can do, um, especially if you don't recognize the signs or the signs were hidden from you. Or um, if you don't take the community approach and say, if you see something as, you know, a trainer or as a nutritionist or um, as a coach and you don't say something to like that clinician, um, you, you really kind of cutting the feet off, you know, like you have to, we all have to be in a, in a position of accountability and making sure we communicate with each other so that we can be those helping professionals because otherwise then it's like, what's the point? Jay and Jimmy, I'd like to get y'all's perspective from a from students who are in in this now. It's your interest, um, probably even maybe doing some research on it. What what do you see? What do you see as social work student researchers who will be going into the field here in the next few months and then next year for you, Jimmy? Um, dum, dum, dum. What do you, <laughs> what do you see? Like what what should we be doing? 
Okay, so I'm actually doing my capstone on the on uh, mental wellness with student athletes, and um, I feel like a lot of the times when recruiters are coming in, they're looking at the physical build and how fast this person can run, how high they can jump, instead of doing a mental test, like wellness test, and focusing on things that they can support the student before getting here. Um, I even looked at something that was similar to wraparound services, um, providing a team uh, representative or a student athlete representative, mental coach, and also test outside of physical testing that will um, assist students for a longer player life. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, very similarly to Jay, uh, I'm actually doing something in evaluation where we have to come up with a program. And the, the program that I was thinking about was just being able to put in place uh, social workers in universities in specifically athletic departments to have somebody there to, like Jay was saying, instead of just coming in and doing how high can you jump? Let's come in and let's do an initial, an initial assessment, because even if there's nothing wrong going mental illness wise or mental health wise, it's still a period of transition. Like we're talking about, it is such a vulnerable time for this population of individuals regardless of the athletes, just in general, this time frame that they're in. So I think just being able to create, like we're talking about, a more open and accepted atmosphere around mental health and mental illness, but then also being able to put professionals in the position to help do assessments for everybody as they come in. Just how are you doing? Just have that conversation, provide the opportunity for somebody to express how they're feeling. I think that's really important. So it's really interesting, and I don't know if you guys realize it, but you guys just basically provided a thesis for a program. Develop it. Present it. You know, to the counseling department, to, you know, admissions or to, you know, the the coaches um, present it as a well-oiled package for something that can be sustainable long past the time you guys are here or even if that becomes employment for you guys to, you know, provide those clinical assessments and, and, and that triage, I guess, if you will, um, to make sure that players are good um, and that in those ones that, you know, feel like, okay, they might score lower here. All right, this is the plan that needs to be put in right. place. They'll need to have weekly therapy for X amount of months and making sure that that's something that's, you know, open at the university level. I think the ideas and things that we talk about um, in terms of like mental health and wellness, um, I think we have to remember that sometimes these things don't exist. Um, in a lot of places, but you have to be willing to stand up and create the programs, like do the work. Um, a full-time in-house therapist for the NFL did not exist. I came in, I I did it. I'm doing it. Like sometimes you're going to have to be the first. And I think that's, that's okay. Right. Um, but I think because you guys have that passion and you have that knowledge and you've got great leadership here, um, and I'm literally talking about this at every college I go to, like build programs, like create them. It doesn't have to be, oh, we need this and we should do this. Okay, this is how we do it and this is what it should look like, you know, to support our student athletes. And I think that provides resources and opportunities and experience for so many people. Like there should be no reason why that shouldn't be an internship for someone that's working, you know, um, in their master's or their bachelor's degree, you know, to be able to work with students. I don't care if it's, you know, filing or, you know, they're learning HIPAA. Like there's so many different um, ways in which you can be educated on it. But I, I think 
between the two of you. I think that's a great idea. Um, and I really encourage you to to do something with it. Don't just let it be an idea that collects dust under the bed. Like really start to build it and, and make those connections um, and to see how you can get it off the ground. Well, Jimmy and Jay, looks like uh, you and I and uh, y'all and, and <laughs> me here, we're going to be looking at some grant opportunities because that's, and Jay's known me for, for a bit now in the program and he knows I've been talking about that for a while. <laughs> it's just a matter of getting it out there and doing it. So, Correct. Yeah. Which um, is hard. And I don't say yeah. that lightly. Yeah. But it's important. It's important. Again, this segment is we're addressing uh, student athletes and or athletes in general. Um, it can be a, a, a community, a population that can be overlooked. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we've had a lot of wonderful discussions here today. I appreciate everybody's input. I appreciate you guys sharing your stories. I'm going to I'm going to take a little bit of a different um, turn here. Tish, I'm going to ask you, we ask all our guests, uh, because we're so enveloped in our work, right? We're so into what we're doing. It's, it's almost like our work identifies who we are, mm-hmm. right? And and we identify with our work. But sometimes that's, that's not a good thing. And so we'd like to make sure that our listeners know that although you're doing a lot of great work in the community and, and serving a, a, a population that needs attention, uh, what are things that you do that that don't connect with the work? What do you do to have fun? What what are things that you enjoy doing and that's not related to your work? Oh, okay. Well, that's easy. Um, I do a lot of stuff. Um, so, well, let me kind of start with this. Um, I think when you've been in doing this field, well, I'm going to go back a little bit further. When you first get into the field of social work, it can be um, very overwhelming. Um, you can get so engrossed in just doing the day-to-day work, doing the grind. Um, you know, for me early on in my career, I definitely struggled with compassion fatigue. You guys familiar with compassion fatigue, right? Yeah. All right. Where um, I was working in a substance abuse, you know, facility and, you know, I would hear these stories hour after hour after hour after hour. Um, I remember a guy having DTs, delirium tremors, in my office because he was a GM at a restaurant at, like, a steakhouse here in Charlotte, and he um, had was drinking a fifth of vodka every day for, like, months. And the day he came to my office, he decided to stop, and he had stopped for a couple of days or, like, 48 hours, and he had DTs. And I remember I would go home, and I couldn't leave it at work. Like, I took it with me every single time, and it got... Um, very depressing, you know, for me. Um, And I didn't really know how to cut it off. I felt that if I cut it off, it meant that I didn't care. And I really struggled with that. And I think a lot of students um, or a lot of people, when they go into the field of social work, they struggle with that. I know I had a lot of colleagues and peers at the time, we were all same age, all just graduated. And they were all kind of like struggling with that. Like they were almost going into depression um, because it was hard and they didn't know how to detach. Um, And then I don't know when it happened, but then it got to a point in my career where um, I became deep. I'm not going to say too detached, but I became just withdrawn enough where it's like I could be the, do the work and I could care and I can help, but I didn't take it home with me. And that was a very, um, that was a milestone for me because that's how I got my happy back, you know, and that's how I um, was able to still do the things I love and not feel guilty about it. You know, um, I would have work with a lot of the homeless, you know, population and I would go home trying to figure out like, oh my God, they haven't eaten anything. I got to get them food. I got to get them bus fare. I got to, and, and try and do all these things. And it consumed me um, to the point where I didn't want to do anything else. Like I, I physically couldn't because I was so emotionally drained at the end of the day. So um, once you get to a point, I think in your career where it's like you can still help, but you recognize that that's not your life and that's not your situation. Um, it was very freeing. So with that freedom, 
you know, came all the other things that I just, you know, like enjoying, like, you know, spending time going to the movies, spending time hanging, you know, with my friends and with my family, um, even still doing things like this, like even now, like I've done, this is like my third speaking type engagement this week. Um, and I enjoy those things. Um, I, I enjoy doing these things because it doesn't feel like work to me. I feel like I, I'm blessed to be able to, um, talk about the work that I love. So I, I think I posted on my LinkedIn, like you work, like when you're doing something you love, it doesn't, you'll never work a day in your life. Now, mind you, I worked a whole lot of days. I worked a lot of days. Um, uh, there was a lot of t period of time where I was definitely working two jobs for about a decade. Um, literally, I was working, I, I never really remember me not working at least two jobs. Um, so for all the social workers out there, listen, just know it's a, it's a grind. It's a hustle. I'm, I'm not going to make it like it's, it's you, you, I think some people look at where I'm at now and it's like, oh, that just happened. No, it did not just happen. It took time. Um, it took a lot of time and it took a lot of work and it took a lot of sacrifice. Um, and you put in that time. But I think now, you know, I, I'll do things like the mindfulness meditation. So it's not that I just, you know, preach it, I practice it. So I'll spend time doing those things. Um and just really doing things that really work for me. Um, I have a, a daughter. Um, I have a three-year-old. So spending time with her, um, spending time with my family. Um, I would like to say I love cooking, but it's more of like you do it not to like die. <laughs> not like I really like look forward to it, um, you know, but um, I'm definitely like a, a movie and music buff. But um, and, and eating out, which is probably not a bad thing, but I love trying new restaurants. Any place you guys want to go in like Charlotte that you have an interest in trying, you give me a... We'll hit you up. We'll ask you for advice. I'm telling you, I'm like the best at like restaurant recommendations on any level for any event for any type of meal. You could start your own Yelp. <laughs> I really should. Look, if I could, I need an intern. That's what I I need someone to like manage my my social media and just post the stuff I want to do. I just don't have time. I don't have time to figure all this stuff out. I don't want to do all that. Um, but I definitely do want to be like a food blogger for like Charlotte. Yeah, I really do. Um, and plus they get the inside scoop to like all the new restaurants like before they open. I like that. Anyway, but that's typically what I do for fun. Um, so just a variety of things. But I think it, it took me a while to get here, um, to get to a place where I, I'm not overly consumed by work and that I can leave it at the end of the day. And I think that just comes with time and, and, and practice. Well, Tish, we appreciate this fruitful discussion you've had with us. Um, and, and Jimmy and Jay, we appreciate you guys being here as well. Thanks for your interest in the helping profession. Um, but also thanks for your tenacity and wanting to know how to help communities, uh, particularly again, today we're, we're focusing a little bit on the, on the athletes and, uh, and, and the, the rigors that an athlete goes through, um, to just play, you know, for some athletes, they just want to play. And, and there's so many other layers involved with playing that can become very stressful for them as well. So Tish, for people who would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they can do that? So the best way would be uh, email. Um, so it's tish at transitionsmg.com. Um, and I would like to say I, I get LinkedIn requests and I don't always get to them. Um, but I do my best. Um, You're too busy checking out restaurants. Yeah, you know, I, I do my best. Um, I, I think so, but I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and, and so I, I get messages there and I definitely do my best to try to respond. Um, I don't get it perfect. Um, and, and I think uh, early on, I think when, you know, I, my role kind of became public, I think I was getting about a dozen a day 
or so of, of like messages. And again, I think I started to get like that compassion fatigue and I was trying to respond to everyone. These are people I've never met in my life and I, I have no connection to them. And I was like, I got to respond. Oh my God. And, and, and it was stressing me out a little bit and I just kind of had to shut it down um, for a while. So if you did hit me up on LinkedIn and you haven't got a response, that's probably why. It got it got to be a little bit too much. Um, and that's why I said I need an intern. So I'm on a hunt. Um, we can help you out with that. But yeah, I, I really might need that help. But um but yeah, so those would probably be the, the two the two main ways. And um, I do post on Instagram, I'm the real dope therapist um, on IG, and um, I'm not super avid in social media, but I, I kind of take the Beyonce approach. Like I'm good for like a post every couple of weeks, maybe once a month. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, we appreciate you being here with us. I know that uh, you're very busy. Um, you're very invested in the community. We appreciate that as well. And and thanks for for being here. Thanks, thanks for, for having me. It's good. And Jay and Jimmy, we'd like to thank you guys for coming in today. Uh, we appreciate your your information and, and everything that you guys are doing. Uh, definitely. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. To access this episode, along with notes and information about Teach Gearn and her work, navigate to thehelpinghandspodcast.com. And please make sure to find, review, and like podcast episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We'd also like to give a special thanks to UNC Charlotte for supporting us by providing the studio and resources to record our podcast episodes. And a special thanks to our listeners for their curiosity and willingness to learn something new today. Until next time, remember, strong always, always strong.